I'm Richard, and welcome to Acid Torque's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of July 22nd, 2013. Join us this week as we talk with Stephen G., author of a new book on the legacy of the iconic Los Angeles architect, John Parkinson. We'll also visit with Pat Adler Ingram, director of the Southern California Historical Society, to discuss Charles Fletcher Lummis, early L.A. booster, librarian, preservationist, and builder. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs on the mix. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to 5th and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So he did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between everyone. Welcome to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of July 22nd, 2013. I want to welcome you. We have two interviews this week, as we always do. Our interviews this week are, one, Stephen G. Stephen is a producer for the British news channel ITV, who has written a book about the iconic Los Angeles architect, John Parkinson. Interview number two. Pat Adler Ingram. She is executive director of the Southern California Historical Society. They have made their home since 1963 at Charles Fletcher Lummis's residence, El Alasal, in northeast Los Angeles, just off of Avenue 43. Southern California Historical Society has been in existence since 1888. So Pat and Pat, of course, will be talking about Charles Fletcher Lummis. Kim. 
I want, before we get into our regular introductory sections, I want you to remind everyone about our pishka. That would be the digital tip jar, and we hope if you enjoy this podcast that you'll consider throwing a little something into said digital tip jar to help us with the gasoline expenses as we travel the Southland looking for fascinating people to talk to for you to listen to. Of course, you're not obligated to contribute, but we so appreciate it when people do, and we appreciate your listenership as well. Kim, let's let's get through the closely watched train section. I see the first thing on the list we've compiled is the opening of the Natural History Museum's exhibit on Los Angeles. Thrilling. Um, long overdue has been a dedicated museum to the history and development of Los Angeles. Uh, we don't have it yet, but we have now a very large gallery with a new installation showing off some of the extraordinary artifacts held by the Natural History Museum. People tend to forget that the Natural History Museum isn't just push buttons and dinosaurs. It's also uh, some really extraordinary history of the um, development of Southern California. The movie industry collection is incredible. A lot of this stuff has not been on view in years. It's been available for consultation by scholars. So we're super excited. However, we have not yet... Well, let me take that back. I won't say we haven't seen the exhibit. We haven't seen the finished exhibit. We had the um, (laughs) lovely opportunity to come down and consult uh, with some of our On Bunker Hill colleagues, including Nathan Marsak and Gordon Patterson, on the um, giant tabletop well, when I say tabletop, you're thinking of a table, um, parking lot-sized model of downtown Los Angeles, which is on display. There were some questions about what specific buildings were and some things that were missing. So we saw the uh, Midway installation, and we're so looking forward to seeing the full thing. And Richard, I think you're working on a little little visit? No. You're not? Well, I'm sure we'll get over there before long. So uh, we, we look forward to hearing your feedback if you've seen this new exhibit at, at the Natural History Museum. And when you're there, uh, don't miss the gem room, another great favorite. Thanks, Kim. Just uh, I've, I've been office of historic, the state office of historic resources has been on my mind a lot since I've been on the phone with them a lot. And, and you, you sent me a, a little note this week, which I found most heartening. The, uh, the State Office of Historic Resources has passed out $185,000 to local governments in grants to help foster historic preservation. So this, uh, the, the, the cities are uh, Burbank, Elk Grove, Eureka, Glendale, Los Angeles, Riverside, South Pasadena, the County of Ventura, and the City and County of San Francisco. So this is a good thing. Uh, what this is going to do is it's going to give municipalities who have developed historic preservation ordinances because the State Office of Historic Resources came into inception in in the early 70s. Kim, you're, you're waving your hand. What? Well, I mean, there, it, it's not all historic ordinances. It's, it's actually really cool, and I love to see these small grants getting given out because it means that every one of these municipalities had to come up with a project and was, a, a, was, a small funded I was, was going to get to that. Yeah, I know you were. I was, I was going to get to that. Well, go on then. Okay, so, well, yeah, Kim, this is not just for historic preservation ordinances. This is for the municipalities to do as they see fit to further historic preservation in their communities. Uh, City of Los Angeles is going to devote 
Uh, I think it got about $20,000, and it's going to create a focus group to focus on gay, lesbian, bi, and transgendered individuals as, as a is a focus for Survey LA, so monuments important to that community. So, this, which which has nothing to do with m- many of the 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 vast programs the City of Los Angeles has as laws on the book to help foster historic preservation. No, but it's super interesting, and I love what uh, the City of Burbank proposed. Burbank has some terrific signage. You know, um, they always made fun on The Tonight Show of beautiful downtown Burbank, but I think downtown Burbank is beautiful. It's almost all single-story retail storefronts from the 1930s and beyond. There's some fantastic surviving signage, of which the Safari Inn is probably the most notable, uh, just a fantastic 1950s sign. And they've asked for a grant to come up with a an ordinance for helping business owners and property owners preserve and maintain and restore historic signs. And wow, in, in a world where people knock signs down left and right and don't really have a recognition of how important they are, it's really, really cool to see Burbank doing that. On the heels of um, the city of Beverly Hills actually coming up with a historic preservation ordinance, I'd say we're living in a golden age for preservation. I, I wish the city of Los Angeles had taken out a grant to um, educate the owner of the Masonic, the, the 1904 Masonic Hall building at 57th and Figueroa, or maybe just sent <laughs> his, his CPA to, uh, to, to a, a workshop. Maybe a little reminder that he's probably getting an enormous tax break having that National Register building on Figueroa, but no. So what happened is a couple weeks ago, the owner of, of the Masonic Hall at 57th and Figueroa took out all the, the, the windows above the, the, the main windows. At, at, it's like the clear a, it's story. A, it's a clear story. Yeah, it's a clear story. The clear story level windows, which are very small panes, I think about 20 across and three or four high and and he took he took them out and he he claimed he didn't know that he wasn't supposed to do that he didn't claim he didn't know that because his building was a historic cultural monument that he couldn't actually make alterations to the facade without uh, approval from the, the cultural his uh, the chc the cultural Heritage Commission. Commission. Actually, the more he talked, the more he got himself in a hole. Because he's like, oh, I could have fixed it, but it would have been really expensive. It would have been like $12,000. Yeah, that's why your taxes are so low. Right. So so just, you know, wanting wanting to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, um, his property tax bill is markedly less because he owns a property, which is an HCM, which is covered by the Mills Act. So, so I would think that that most people whose property tax bill is over mm, five dollars a year mm. pro- probably have have a pretty good sense of of, uh, of of their property tax bill and and if they're getting big benefits. But you know what, Edgar Garcia is going to figure this out. I don't have to. And Edgar Garcia is on the case. <sighs> Always good to hear. More news in Northeast Los Angeles. Kim, the Northeast Los Angeles uh, newspaper project has been launched. This is this is a project out of Occidental College to digitize the all these great turn of the century newspapers from Northeast Los Angeles. Super cool. I love this. Um, you know, there were in Los Angeles there were eleven major newspapers in the middle part of the century, but there were 
scores of of little neighborhood newspapers and uh, newspapers that were dedicated to specific groups, ethnic groups. A lot of them weren't even in English. Swedish Vekoblad, anyone? So the notion of these rotting pulp documents being scanned and better still being OCR'd, which means that they'll be digitally searchable and shared with the um, big archive of newspapers in Riverside is is big, big news for Los Angeles because Northeast LA is such an important cultural center um, and, you know, one of the first suburbs. We'll, we'll obviously be talking about Charles Fletcher Lummis in this podcast, one of the early artistic settlers, and just, you know, people lived in Nila and did really great, fascinating stuff, and it's been completely lost because it's unsearchable. These are daily papers in many cases. So, you know, it doesn't take a lot of money to sit down and scan these things, make them accessible, and as we've discovered with our 1947 Project Time Travel blogs, once the stuff's out there, you make these incredible connections uh, through internet searchability, and I I don't know what's going to come of this, but I think really great things are. Well, people will be able to to talk to Charlie Fisher about his favorite talk topic at ModCom meetings now. What's that? These newspapers. Because oh, at wow. this point, Charlie Fisher is like one of the few people that has read that's them? gotten, that, that has, has worked with the original falling apart documents. <laughs> They're for, pretty delicate. For, for all of his important and extensive uh, HCM application work he's done in Northeast Los Angeles. So he's probably looking forward to have some, having people talk to him about this this important topic. Well, I'm hoping for more news of my favorite resident of Highland Park, Minnie Epp. Minnie Epp, of course, the lady who in 1947, at the age of 63, as the elevator operator of the Bradbury Building, saved it from burning because she was the only person who knew how to operate those persnickety elevators. And she took the firefighters up to the top during this massive fire to make sure that they could get to the point of the fire and save that building. So I'm hoping that Minnie Epp has many other stories that will show up in these newspapers. And, and aside, for, for those of you that choose to work under OS ten, a PDF scanner is a piece of software which will work with any, any scanner that OS ten recognizes. That's a fancy way of saying if image capture opens when you plug your scanner in. Buy a copy, buy a version of PDF scanner. It will scan into a PDF the text, the, the old newspaper or the uh, Historical Society of Southern California article about extant adobes circa 1913, and it will put it into o- it will OCR it, so it'll it'll actually make your PDF searchable. searchable. I love it. And and so if you're going to go down to the fourth floor of the history room at LIPL and spend four hours scanning articles out of out of the Historical Society of Southern California, you, you they they might as well be searchable. Because because it's going to take you a while to to read them as you as uh, you, you attempt to stay awake at, at one o'clock in the morning. A very helpful tip, thank you, Richard. I'm here to help, Kim. This is uh, I can't remember the last time you were up at one in the morning. <laughs> Nothing wrong with going to bed early. You have a lot of you chores. know. I don't know why people think I go to bed so early. I, we go we're out and about, and people make <laughs> statements like, "Oh, you go to bed at nine o'clock," and I don't. At all, I love you. Okay, so the next, the, the next and the last item in the closely watched trains queue this week is an art a notice which is which really I just I'm so happy to tell you what I'm about to tell you. So the city of Monterey Park is considering making inclusive as part of meetings covered by the Brown Act, i.e., public meetings which are part of government 
you know, goings on, you know, like city council meetings, commission meetings, etc. Um, if Monterey Park had neighborhood council meetings, neighborhood council meetings would be covered under this. I'm thinking, of course, of the downtown Los Angeles neighborhood council. Of which more later? Um, no, no, no. I just, just, just want to let everyone know Monterey Park is considering making electronic communication by members of meetings part of the publicly available that it's part of the meetings. Well, so I think you, they're actually trying to ban it, which is even better. Well, I, I I think they're trying. What they're doing is they're they're letting elected officials know if someone's talking and saying things you don't like, and you're trying to do a runaround or circumvent or in some way engage in Machiavellian activity via a smartphone or other uh, electronic device. Like, for instance, telling your deputy to go over and tie their shoelaces together so they trip when they walk away, something like that. Yeah, Kim, like that. We're just saying what a jerk. Yeah, public. Right. So this this is, I'm, we're going to keep track of this. It makes me think that something really untoward has been going on if they even put this on their agenda to discuss. And we saw it at the downtown LA Neighborhood Council where people were tweeting back and forth at each other, I guess texting, and doing some really sketchy stuff during public meetings. And it's very unpleasant. No, well, actually, Kim, we see it every time we go to city council. It just, it just so happens when I stand up and give public comment at city council meetings, no one texts people and no one does anything. But when I give public comment at D-Link meetings, some people start texting furiously and odd things happen as, as you're in the middle of giving your comment, which makes you think that there, there's a lot more going on than you think, which is, of course, the nature of government. And politics. So we're going to move on, Kim, and we're going to keep a, keep an eye on that watch train. Yes. Uh, upcoming events, Kim, we have this weekend the Black Dahlia Tour, which is sold out, so we're not even going to get into it. Nope. Okay. Sold out. But, the next but, day. But, but you, can, you can come next time? We do okay. it four times a year? Kim, you don't. Okay. It, it would actually be better if we never talked about this tour again, because it would still sell out every time. Thank you, Beth Short, wherever you are. Um, thank, thank you. Uh, thank, I'd like to thank the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department and the Los Angeles Police Department for making the series of grand jury investigations in 1949, 50, and 51 possible, which uh, are the defining events of post-war Los Angeles, uh, of which the investigation of Beth Short's unsolved murder was... The investigation uh, of the investigation. Thank you. Upcoming events. Yes, please. 28th, Sunday, the 28th of July, this coming Sunday, we have the Lava Salon. We have two great events. Uh, we're going to talk about early silent filmmaking in Los Angeles and early neon signage. And, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's, it's going to be great. Look at the website. It's, it's fantastic. And immediately following the, the two-hour salon, which is noon to two at Figaro Bistro, which is free, of course. Yes. Immediately following this free salon is a free walking tour of Broadway. And we have started the Flaneur in the City walking tour series again. We started it on Broadway, and we are going to give a walking tour, an hour-long free walking tour on Broadway after the salon every month until the end of the year because we are here to raise consciousness about the fragile, delicate, sensitive, and incredibly beautiful ecosystem which is the broadway business and theater district which is a national register district it's a federally recognized 
preser- preservation overlay district, and what I just said makes is not a real word. But we're super excited about Broadway, and we're very concerned about the passage of funding for Strategy 1, Phase 1 of the Broadway Streetscape Master Plan. This is, this is something we're on. Go to the URL for the walking towards all there. We're here to get people down there and look at Broadway and be concerned, because there, there's good reason to be concerned. This is an incredibly complicated situation. It's an incredibly complicated street to implement anything on, and it's going to get really interesting. And in addition to this walking tour, I just recorded uh, a couple days ago several fantastic dead-on interviews with Donald Spivak, a former planner for the CRA, about public policy and Broadway since 1980, basically, from 1980 to 2012. And we're just, we're going to keep going back, and we're going to keep looking at Broadway, and keep getting people down to Broadway to think about it, to look about it, to talk about it. And to be part of the voice for preserving and maintaining it and keeping it vibrant, because changes are coming, but these changes are not set in stone by any stretch, and I think the more people who really have a passion and an understanding of the space and can speak up, the better for Broadway moving forward. And I I think I want people to keep two things in mind. The the entities involved in, in these proposed changes to Broadway, none of them or the people involved want any public feedback. They're, 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 oh, yeah, no, to, no, Kim. It's, I mean, it's there, not, there has been public feedback, but, it, you know... No, they, a, they, 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 yeah, there's been public feedback in highly controlled situations. Yeah, they're very controlled. They bring in specific groups. They're, they're very focused meetings, and they're not no, really Kim, accessible they're, to they're, the grand, <laughs> grand public. Okay, D-Lank is a tool yes. for Council District 14 to propagate whatever agendas... CD14 has, which is not necessarily an expression of the constituents of CD14. Okay. And that's, that's what this tour is, is trying to bring about. And another thing I want to remind people about this tour is the city has been trying to reinvent Broadway since 1950. And there have been many, many, many attempts. And there will be many more. So um, the notion of politicians speaking in the future tense instead of the subjunctive tense or the conditional tense, I, I find very amusing. Well, the big problem with Broadway, and this, of course, will be part of the discussion on these tours, is that private property is private property. So the things that can be changed are the public spaces, and it's a large swath of land, and it would be very, very easy to go down the same path that's been trod over on Spring Street and do just some very modern, contemporary, trendy-looking stuff. There's some street furniture over on Spring Street that I think would totally spoil the vistas on Broadway. And it's important that Broadway remain classical, Beaux-Arts, traditional, beautiful in the way that it is. If it's going to change, it needs to be done very, very delicately and very sensitively. Thanks, Kim. So everyone, come down. Yeah, and, and sign up. Sign up and, and get on the tour. There's, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about. And you're going to learn how to write the... Um, how to write the RFQ to best match the candidate that you want to take it. Really? Yeah, that's that's what these walking tours are about. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Oh yeah, that's that's the secret to, 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 to public policy. So, Kim, let's start talking about a couple things we know about our upcoming guests. We are going to uh, we're going to interview 
Stephen first, so I will talk about Pat first in the introduction. So Pat Adler Ingram is Executive Director of the Southern California Historical Society. She is an absolute and utter dream. I love her. She's the best. She's an utter genius. Go down, catch her on a Friday or Saturday afternoon, send her an email, give her a call, let her know you're coming. Spend 20 minutes talking to her. She's, she's great. And, and El Alasal is wonderful. Absolutely just fantastic. This interview, this interview will not deal with El Alasal at all. We, we, we worked out the interviews that way. So, so the next interview I put out with her will specifically just deal with El Alasal. This interview will be a more general overview of gagging Lummis to Los Angeles, gagging him as the editor, as an editor at the LA Times, his stroke, his recovery, and it is, it is during his recovery that he has uh, this this sea change, which turns him into the person who will become a really early and important arbiter of taste in Los Angeles, and a great supporter of the American Indian cause, to the point where he quite filthily approached the president and changed national policy. Yeah, so you'll hear all about it. Okay. And, yes, it's a great interview, and and our first interview will be with Stephen G. Stephen G. Oh, Kim, help me. He's he's a native of Lancashire. Yes, I, you yeah, did. Yeah, I got perfectly. it. He's a, Stephen G. is a native of Lancashire. Don't keep trying. You got it right. John once. Parkinson, the architect, is a native of Lancashire. This is very important in the unfolding narrative of how and why Stephen G. a very humble and wonderful producer of news for a British news service came to find himself writing a book about fellow native Lancashirian. Ooh, that was bad. John Parkinson. It was fine. Uh, the book is out of is from Angel City Press. Title is Iconic Vision. John Parkinson, architect of Los Angeles, and if Stephen will be back. There's 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 a lot to talk about. So with that, I want to encourage everyone to stay tuned to these interviews, and we'll take it away. Stephen, I want to thank you for joining me. We're here in the 1912 John Parkinson structure, the Los Angeles Athletic Club. And we're going to talk to you about your book that just came out from Angel City Press, Iconic Vision, which is about John Parkinson. So before we we jump into that pool, he built a great pool here. Before we jump into that pool, I was hoping you could just introduce yourself and and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, my name's Stephen G, as you know. Um, I've been working on this book about John Parkinson over the last few years, um, for those of you that don't know, John Parkinson was really the most important public architect at a time when the city was inventing itself. Uh, John Parkinson arrived here in 1894 when the population was just over 50,000 people. When he died in uh, 1935, the population was well over a million. He was the dominant architect uh, at a time that Los Angeles transitioned from an outpost to a metropolis. And even if you don't know his name, you're really going to be familiar with his work because John Parkinson was the lead architect for City Hall. Uh, He designed Union Station, the last great American train station, Bullock's Wilshire, an Art Deco cathedral of commerce, 
and uh, the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, which was instrumental in bringing the uh, Olympic Games to Los Angeles. Perfect. And you mentioned the Olympics. This building we're in, the Los Angeles Athletic Club, which Harry Chandler carried the note on to make sure it got, got built. This building was built by Parkinson in part to make sure there was an infrastructure for Olympic training for when the Olympics came. So Parkinson and the Olympics in Los Angeles, way back. So, But we'll, that's another interview. Okay, Stephen, let's, um, let's just get started. Let me just ask you how you got started with this quest to write a book, and you're working on a documentary. So just John Parkinson and you. And we get to go back to England to start this, right? Well, I mean, this journey for me, actually, I mean, it started several years ago. I used to work in Burbank, and our office moved to downtown Los Angeles. And I was kind of energized by coming to a new place and learning about downtown Los Angeles. And I did a lot of research on the history, and I took a lot, every tour I could get on uh, to, fi- to find out more. And this one guy's name just kept coming up for all the buildings that I, I really found appealing. And it was John Parkinson. And when I found out that uh, John Parkinson was born in Scorton, Lancashire, and he grew up in Bolton, Lancashire, I was really hooked because uh, my father's from Lancashire. And I felt like I understood who John Parkinson was because I understood his family values uh, because I thought they weren't too dissimilar to what my family would have been at that time. Basically, that if you worked hard, you would get on. If somebody gave you an opportunity you really went for it and you took it and Parkinson you know made a career out of really working hard and taking full full advantage of every opportunity that he was ever given and I I still remember um, walking into the Los Angeles Public Library and asking them where where the where is the John Parkinson section where can I look in the library and find all your John Parkinson books? Because if this guy designed all these structures in this period, there must be at least, I'm guessing, five Parkinson books. And you look on the shelves and it's full of books about East Coast architects, um, a, a lot of whom that contributed less to their city than Parkinson contributed to L.A. And, you know, once I realised that this guy had been not... Once I realized that this guy had been just, not just ignored, but completely forgotten, that it became about, in some small way, correcting a historical oversight. Uh, if John Parkinson had existed in New York or Chicago or Boston, he would be a household name, at least amongst people that are interested in, in the history of their city. In this entire process, I've met just a handful of people who really understood who he was and how important he is to Los Angeles. That's perfect. That's perfect. And just in anticipation, this journey for you with Parkinson will take you back to Lancashire. And, and, and I look, I look for, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but just, just in case people are wondering, you, you did actually knock on doors. You literally, so we'll, we'll get to that. That's, okay. Um, so let's see. Uh, what's, um, what's a really important moment for you in this process to decide you're going to write 
the book about John Parkinson. Maybe was it, there's, you, you mentioned while we were talking, there was an interview with Kevin Starr. So when, 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 do, you, do you want to start with that as, as, as just a, where, uh, an important early step in this journey? Yeah, I mean, the, the, as you mentioned, this process started as a documentary. And I, I knew that I really wanted to try and get to interview Kevin Starr because, because of all, all the obvious reasons. I mean, he, he's really in a class of his own when it comes to California scholars. And I, I remember sitting and talking with him, and I, I said to him, you know, where, where does John Parkinson fit in in this whole sort of uh, process of uh, Los Angeles' development? And he, 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 he thought about it for a second, and he, he looked at me, and I still remember exactly what he said. Um, he said that John Parkinson was the greatest public architect at a time when the city was inventing itself. He was such a founder through architectural statement that he's co-terminal, co-identified with the city itself. He did individual buildings, but at the same time, he was designing a total city. And I, I just remember getting you know, goosebumps at the time because that's everything that I believed he'd done. And it was a very validating experience to to hear it from somebody of his stature that early on in the process because John Parkinson really is an essential, essential element of the development of Los Angeles. Perfect, perfect. Um, in terms of just the, the grind, the day-to-day, the, the -day, I want to now get a, a, a day in the life of you living with this project and, 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 and your daily reminders. So can you just give us... The, the monuments, the Parkinson monuments that every day served as these, these totems to you going home at two in the morning and, 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 and still getting some work done? Well, my, um, my main job is I work for a, a, a British network as, as, a, as a TV news producer. So I have, I have a very busy, demanding job. And I knew if this was going to be a, a story that I was going to really do justice to, I'd have to really love it and feel a real sense of passion about it. For me... When I go to work in the morning, you know, I, get, I live in the, uh, in the northeast of the city. I drive uh, past City Hall on the way in. I drive past the, uh, the Title Guarantee building. Um, you know, I, I park in the library structure. I get out. I walk across Fifth Street. I look down Fifth Street. It's all Parkinson. Um, can, can, can you name a couple buildings on Fifth Street just for people listening? Well, Parkinson designed all four structures on the corner of uh, Fifth and Spring Street the security building, what's now known as the Rowan building, what's now known as the Crocker Bank, uh, the Alexandria Hotel, the city's first world-class hotel. They're all, they're all Parkinson structures. The King Edward Hotel, which Parkinson was a, uh, a part owner with. Um, you see, the, you see the, the, the Roslyn and the Annex. Um, you know, so pretty much everything. Um, I go up into my office, I look out of the window, I see 20 Parkinson structures, at least 20 Parkinson structures. Uh, I go home at night, I drive past all these structures again, and right before I get home, uh, I drive past the Forest Lawn Mausoleum where, where he is, where his body is, and it was a reminder that even if I was extremely tired late at night, that this was an important story. And once you embark on uh, trying to chronicle the life of someone that lives such an incredible life, you have a responsibility to them, regardless of whether they're alive or dead, to do it justice, you know, because you have to portray what they did in the best researched way possible. Wonderful. We, we're starting to get, I am, starting to get a really good sense of the passion that you bring to this. I want to 
flip the lens. I want to turn the lens to Parkinson himself, who can't be with us. I want you to give us a bit of the arc of John Parkinson as, as this seminal arbiter of taste and design for Los Angeles, really in, in the, the definitive period, this transition from the 19th to the 20th century. Well, Park, I mean, the one, the one thing that always really set Parkinson apart is that he was obsessed with the latest architectural techniques. And he would constantly travel to the East Coast to see what they were doing on the East Coast. He would read every single journal that he could get his hands on. So when there are these uh, building blocks, these transitional stages that Los Angeles goes through to become a metropolis, Parkinson's leading the way. 1896, he arrives in 1894. Uh, in 1896, he designs the first steel frame structure, the Homer Laughlin building. You know, and then you have this new technology, uh, you know, because Los Angeles literally needs to grow up and it needs to do it, lit, you know, uh, in a way where it can compete with major cities on the East Coast. In 1902, John Parkinson designs the Braley Block, the first city's first skyscraper. It's not it doesn't make Los Angeles an international city by any means, but it's a step in that direction. He designs, in 1906, the Alexandria Hotel. It's the first world-class hotel in the city. During the First World War, when a lot of local architects are worried where their next job's going to come from, Parkinson doesn't need to worry because he walks into the office of building inspector J.J. Backus in September 1916 with the plans for the terminal warehouse market. It's the biggest building permit the city's ever seen and it's an essential part of the growth of Los Angeles. After the war, Parkinson's commissioned by George Finley Bovard, president of USC, a small Methodist institution, to design a master plan, a master plan that will set that university on the path to becoming one of the most important educational institutions in the nation. There's no statute to Parkinson at USC. There's no course uh, dedicated to the honour, you know, of studying this great architect. In 1920, Donald Parkinson joins the firm. His father's working on a structure that speaks to the bold ambition and the possibility of Los Angeles. I mean, no structure beforehand really said more about where Los Angeles saw its future than the Colosseum. You know, imagine 20 years earlier, uh, L.A. has a population of just over 100,000. Now it's bidding and competing with the major established cities such as Paris and Rome for the Olympic Games. And, you know, imagine the, when Los Angeles finally gets those games and the world's attention is focused on Los Angeles in this stadium designed by John Parkinson. 1925, he teams with A.C. Martin and John C. Austin to design Los Angeles City Hall, perhaps the most iconic structure in California period, and then uh, in the, you know in the early 30s, uh, after a 30-year legal battle, he's given the opportunity to design with a team of architects from the main railroads Union Station. I mean, what an incredible journey! I mean, all of those structures are building blocks, transitional stages from Los Angeles becoming an outpost to a metropolis. You, you did it. You just. You knocked that out of the park. That's that. That's a great summary of Parkinson. I want to know. I want you to tell us. You started really. This really started not as a book, right. but as a documentary. Yeah. 
do you want to talk about that 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 moment when when you realized you you were you were the, the documentary is going to get put on hold and the book project was going to take the lead? Well, I had I had no intention of writing the book. Um, I'd never done it before. You know, I, I, it never really entered my mindset. What I wanted to do was uh, create a, a documentary that did justice to John Parkinson and his legacy and just try and create some awareness about him. I thought it was a fascinating story. And I applied for a lot of grants, and I'd get letters of support from very significant scholars, and I'd work really hard on it. And then after those uh, applications had come back, I didn't get the money. And I'd ring up and say, well, hey, well, you know, why didn't you give me this grant? You know, maybe I can learn from it and do a better proposal next time. And, I, you know, I remember people saying to me, well, we've never heard of this guy. And we rang up people in Los Angeles and that, that know about this stuff, and they've never heard of him either. So we're really sorry, but we can't give you this money. Um, by this point, I'd done so much research on him that I felt I had a, an understanding of his, the, the arc of this story. And I had this massive document where I'd put all my research in, in, in order and I'd always loved the books that Angel City Press did because they really merged all these different forms of ed, uh, information. Uh, they weren't limited by one type of picture or one type of image and they really seemed to have a passion for Los Angeles. And I, I, I wrote a letter uh, to uh, Paddy Callistro, the, the editor, and just said, I think this is a great story and I'm, I'm very grateful that she agreed with me. And now I'm kind of using this book as a way of drawing attention to the film and raising funds to pay for the archive footage to get it finished. All the interviews are there. Uh, we have incredible footage of Parkinson. We have incredible footage of Los Angeles at a time when it's inventing itself. We have interviews with his family. We have amazing interviews with scholars. But archive footage is very expensive. Perfect. We're, we're, we're not done with the documentary talk don't worry hold on i promised at the end we're, we're going to continue that but what i want to do before we, we 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 take this get into the home stretch i want you to take us uh down to that street where parkinson lived in lancashire and tell us about that trip you made because that's just that's a great story well I, I knew that at some point i would have to go back to scorton in you know in the northwest of uh, lancashire where john parkinson's father thomas uh, was was a mill worker, and there was really no expectation for John Parkinson that he would do anything other than what his father did was work as an engineer in a mill. And I'd seen pictures of what Scorton looked like uh, at around the time period when John Parkinson lived there. And I went I went back and, and I walked down Station Lane, where, where Parkinson house Parkinson's house is still there. The street looks exactly the same I went door to door and I knocked on all the doors and I said look do you know anything about this family do you have any pictures uh, that, that might be of interest uh, do you know anything that might add to this story and nobody in Scorton had ever heard of John Parkinson but they were fascinated by the story and I got, I got a lot of help from people that lived there but um, I also went you know I also went to Bolton in Lancashire where um, uh, John Parkinson grew up and they didn't know anything about him either. I love it. I love it. Let's um, let's 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 bring this on home. Let's talk about uh, May. Is it's it's May third. Let's tell us what May third is now for the city of Los Angeles. Well, th um, this book was launched as part of Brit Week, um, 
and you know I'm very grateful to uh, uh, Tom LeBonge from the City Council who made uh, May the 3rd uh, only for this year unfortunately I wish it was every year but um, May the 3rd 2013 was uh, uh, John Parkinson Day in the City of Los Angeles and it was a really special day to be able to stand in uh, City Hall with John Parkinson's family and just really celebrate his legacy and, and just say to the people that work in City Hall that you should know who this guy is and the rest of your city should really know who he is and celebrate his legacy. Perfect. Stephen, we're going we're gonna to wrap this up. I need you to tell us what your message is in this book. The me- I think the message is quite simple, is that you know, John, John Parkinson is all around you. His structures are import- as important today as the day they were when they opened. This is not some story about some guy that lived many years ago who made some interesting buildings who you don't know. His work is everywhere. Everybody knows where City Hall is. Most people in this city know where the Coliseum is. If you walk down uh, Broadway or Spring Street and say, do you recognize these buildings? Everybody's going to recognize them. You ask them where Frank Lloyd Wright's houses are, they're not going to know. But everybody knows where John Parkinson's structures are. That's, That's why he's so important to Los Angeles. And to just bring this into... My, my own personal quest, what you're really saying, another way to say what you just said is, John Parkinson, as you've said twice now in this interview, Parkinson is an architect of public buildings. Rainer Banham was an, an individual, a great scholar of Los Angeles. I personally studied, I went to study under because he was such a genius. And, and Rainer missed it. Rainer would often say Los Angeles has no great public buildings. And this is this is not true, right? That Parkinson is one of the great figures, one of the great figureheads for public buildings in Los Angeles. So I want you to tell us why public buildings are so important and why that makes John Parkinson so important to Angelinos. Well, I mean, every year, millions and millions of people go through these buildings. They all, people work in these buildings. If you go, it's not, I mean, it's not even just the, the obvious ones like Union Station, still the main gate, railroad gateway to Los Angeles, by the way, you know, it's, or Bullock's Wilshire, where all these thousands of law students study. There are thousands and thousands of people who live downtown in converted John Parkinson structures or still work in the office buildings. I mean, you know, if we were to walk down Spring Street or Broadway, you'd see parkinson buildings in every single direction they're a a vibrant important central part of los angeles life and that has never changed it's still as important now as it ever was perfect perfect uh the documentary why don't we just spend uh the book is out iconic vision angel city press you can buy it through their website you can buy it at your local bookstore get it online do it it's a great book give us just a, 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 a little sugar on looking ahead to the documentary the challenges you face and and, 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 and any feedback people can give you on, on your goals and objectives that lay before you um, well if anybody's interested in, in donating to the film you can do that as a, a tax deductible donation through um, the International Documentary Association website or just go to uh, we have a website for a film called johnparkinsonarchitect.com 
all the interviews are in place. Every, all the basic infrastructure to get this film done is in place. I just need to raise money to pay for archive footage, which is very, very expensive. But once you see this footage, you have to have it because it's so important. I mean, if you can see somebody flying in a biplane over the Colosseum while it's in construction, you want to use that, right? You want to see that because it's so important. What about the, the Mount Low railway footage? Well, I mean, I, I have a, a great still image in, in, the, um, in the front of the book, which I just love. It's one of the, the, my favorite images in the entire book. Of, uh, I, I went to UCLA and I went through the John C. Austin collection and I, I saw this image and it wasn't identified as being with John Parkinson but as soon as I saw him on this on the Mount Low Railway I was like oh my god I got shivers I got goose goosebumps because I'm like oh my god because this is such an early image you know and because Parkinson remarried after his first wife died there are almost no I mean there are no images of his first wife meter and I th I'm looking at this thinking that's the back of your head and that's about as close as I'm ever going to get to seeing you but this is so, you know there's so much innocence and excitement in this photo you know the, the, both of these two great architects right at the dawn of their career and all that they have to offer for Los Angeles is still to come you know it's, it's a great picture Stephen, it's it's great book. You're a great soul. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get it together. You're gonna you're gonna get it. You're gonna move on. You're gonna figure this out. You're gonna you're gonna get to done with this documentary. You you are. This is. It's been great to interview you. I think we're gonna interview you again. I think we're gonna get we're gonna roll up our sleeves and uh, do some really focused uh, discussions of buildings. Uh, maybe. Um, I think we're going to do some really focused discussions on buildings. I think we'll start to look at that, that transition between 19th and 20th century Los Angeles and how that's reflected in Parkinson, because that, that's where my interests and passions lay, is in showing how architectural styles really reflect the change in the city. So we'll have you back. I want to thank you. And do you have anything to, to say to people as we go? I, I just really appreciate your time. I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you, and uh, you know, and I, I know that you share the, my passion for this subject matter. So, um, thank you for the opportunity. My name's Dan Fonte, and we are in Los Angeles, nine zero zero six six, also known as Mar Vista, California. And you're listening to "You Can't Eat the Sunshine." Thank you for meeting us today. I'm here with you at Charles Fletcher Lummis's house in the Arroyo, and I would love it if you could in just introduce yourself and tell us who you are. I'm the executive director of the Historical Society of Southern California, and we uh, are headquartered since 1965 here in the Lummis home. The Historical Society is uh, goes way back. We were formed in 1883, and we have been publishing continuously in the field of history since uh, 1884. Perfect. And and you should tell us your your full name, just just because that that helps. Okay, my full name is Patricia Adler Ingram. Perfect. Thank you. So, 
So, Pat, we're here, and um, you're going to tell us a little, uh, some, some, a, a fair amount, actually, I think. We're going to cover a lot of ground about the man that built this house. We're not going to talk about this house on this interview, but we're going to talk about a lot of other things. So, do you want to just start at a point before Charles Fletcher Lummis comes to Los Angeles and just get us to Los Angeles and then a little bit about his life here once he gets here? I think it's important to under, in, to understanding Lummis to know that he was born and raised in Connecticut and his mother died at a very young age. His father was a schoolmaster, uh, the uh, provost of a girls' school, and taught him at home so that he was very well versed in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and of course English. Uh, he entered Harvard, and uh, according to him, he majored in prize fighting, card games, and fooling around. He was ready to graduate except for problem with physics. I believe there was also a problem with another course, but he just dropped out because he'd think, he thought that he had all of the best of the education that Harvard could offer. And so he dropped out. While he was still in school, he had married a young woman who was also a college student. She later became a doctor, which was a hard thing in those days. But after they were married, she continued her education until she got her medical certificate. Meanwhile, uh, he was intending when he graduated to have a grand year, at least, of adventuring in Europe. Uh, His funding didn't, he just didn't have any money. So he settled for going to Ohio and managing a farm for his new wife's uh, father. It was in Chillicothe, Ohio, which at that time was a sizable town near Cincinnati. He was less interested in the farm than he was in the newspaper in Chillicothe. So he made a friendship with the editor, then editor, and began writing little studies and opinion pieces. Then he got the idea that he would translate from Europe to to America, and he would explore America. Uh, He got a little arrangement with the Chillicothe editor and a bigger arrangement with the editor in Los Angeles of the new newspaper, Los Angeles Times, and Harrison Gray Otis, the editor, uh, promised that he would pay him a small amount of money for an article describing his adventures as he walked across the country, which was over a 3,000-mile walk. He did it in record time, uh, he w- was careful not to accept rides, he said, if it was going in his planned direction. But if it was going a, fi- a, a field trip, a side trip, then he- he'd take a ride on a horse or in a buggy or anything. He had a chance to talk to a great many people. He started out thinking that, of course, he's going to have to deal somehow with the Indians. He didn't really consider the Indians as people just as a kind of a problem. But as he was walking across the continent, he found that in the desert, 
if he were really famished for a drink of water or really simply famished and needed some food, that the first Indian household that he encountered would welcome him in. So gradually his attitude toward the Indian folks changed. When he got as far as the Pueblos of New Mexico, he made a really, really substantial friendship with the Chavez family. And uh, actually, the Chavez great-great-great-grandson was here at the house a couple of weeks ago bringing us some photographs. The photographs showed the family uh, living room where Lummis had... uh, been so welcomed. It showed Lamas' second wife, Eva, in the living room. And if we look now at the great room here in the Lamas' house, it's astoundingly similar to, to that Indian house. It has the same telegraph pole rafters and the same stucco, uh, the same treatment of the windows. The windows have a uh, form board at the top, sort of a shallow arch, and the frame of the window was set as Lummis was building this house into the wet concrete. In the Pueblos, of course, it was set into wet adobe. Lummis himself found that writing was his key to the world, really. The people that were reading the newspaper accounts were hungry for news of this new country. It was just about the most enticing thing that they could think of because not only had gold been discovered out here, which was totally its own magic, but the western lands, the Kansas land rush and other experiences that all people in America were attracted to. Lummis was their first spokesman. He was the first one that said, see America first, because we have wonders of scenery and wonders of geography that can't possibly be matched in Europe. These little articles that he was writing on the way differed. He sent one type of an article to Chillicothe and a much more flamboyant article to Los Angeles, to Otis Otis Gray, to the L.A. Times. When he got here, he immediately set to work for the L.A. Times at a furious pace. He tended to do everything at a furious pace. And after about two years of this, with sleeping just a couple of hours a night, he collapsed, he had a heart attack, and he was paralyzed. Um... He, when he was able to stand up, just barely, he decided to go back to the New Mexico Indian Pueblos where he had been so happy and live an outdoor life and restore his strength. He wrote a little book about that, My Friend Will, because he was convinced that his own willpower was key to his recovery from paralysis. He did such things as, uh, pretty flamboyant things, as always trying to break the ice to have his morning bath in the, in the, <laughs> in the lake or the stream. 
uh, carrying great loads. By this time, when he was at the, at the Times, he had learned to use a, a camera. And it was um, a 5 by 7 view camera with glass plate negatives and, of course, a tripod and a, a, a bulb release so that he could stand to the side, judge the uh, exposure he would need, and j- uh, judge the uh, uh, timing and, and the composition. He was, he was composing, of course, on the back plate, glass plate of a camera where everything was upside down, no doubt with a black cloth over his head, and focusing as sharply, sharply as he could, then making the exposure, taking the plate out of the camera, putting a new plate in, carrying this whole baggage of stuff, which was great uh, for strengthening his arms and his back, of course, he made a whole series of photographs of the Pueblos, the Acoma Pueblo, the uh, other Pueblos there, uh, especially he, he loved the Isleta Pueblo because that was a place where he had found a home for himself in a little Indian um, house, which he rented from the Abieto family, and uh, where he had... Incidentally, accidentally, the good fortune to show up at a Pueblo where the uh, leader had just recently, in a few years ago, died, and he had been per- paralyzed, probably with a stroke. So here comes this gringo, paralyzed like their beloved leader, and making friends with one of their chief families, which got him in to the society to the town there on a basis that would be really difficult for anyone driving up in an automobile today to achieve. His work and his insights with the Pueblo, I think, translate here into the Lemassant. Now, but but we we, we, we said we were going to um, that's okay no no we said that for the, for our next interview we're going to talk about the house here so why don't we um, we we just I, we should we should wrap this up so why don't you quickly if you could just rattle off um, a couple of his milestones like the landmarks club and 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 the city librarian and then for our next interview we'll just roll up our sleeves and dig into this room and, and I cannot wait Land, landmarks club was formed right in this room, so we'll, maybe we can leave that. However, uh, he married his second wife with great love and proceeded to have babies one after the other. He named the first one for his friend Chavez, Amado Chavez, and he gave him the middle name of the uh, archaeologist Bandelier, with whom he had been friends. As soon as he was recovered, he and Bandelier went off for an archaeological expedition to uh, Brazil and uh, Uruguay, I believe. Their funding ran out. Lamas came home. And then uh, he became the chief librarian for the city of Los Angeles. This was a very controversial appointment because always before there had been a woman librarian <laughs> and and the city fathers were not sure about this rather wild guy. He, he uh, rose to the occasion, did some innovations with the system of the library, which was kind of surprising given the fact that he was a romantic, a poet, 
and uh, not at all accustomed to establishing and let alone abiding by a routine of any sort. Anyway, he did some good things there, among them opening a roof garden on the uh, library where you could read outdoors and incidentally smoke a cigar or cigarette. Uh, it, it was a, a little irritating to Lamas to find that if he loaned the books out, sometimes they didn't come back. Now, he figured that he could take care of that. He got a branding iron made as the, as the cattle were branded with, and it said Los Angeles Library. He branded the books, and until the most recent uh, disaster at the library, you could still find a few of his branded books here and there forgotten on the shelves. After he was the librarian, which lasted a good, a good time, he, uh, anyway, simultaneously and afterwards, he was the editor of a kind of chamber of commerce booster magazine called The Land of Sunshine. And he had a, uh, an editorial page that he added to it, so it was not so boosterish. And he called that in the lion, From the Lion's Den. And then he added the book review section, which he wrote and gave you the real news about any new publication that he thought was worthwhile. If he didn't think it was worthwhile, he would just say, this is not worthwhile. And uh, then he changed the name uh, to Out West and used that magazine to speak for all things uh, regarding the West, the irrigation problems, and of course the uh, Indian policy as it was being followed then by the U.S. government. He, he did yeoman work uh, on uh, being a, a, a gadfly to the Indian agency. In 1903, I believe it was, McKinley, the president, was assassinated, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt was then president. It just so happened that while, while Lemus was in uh, Harvard, he was acquainted with Teddy Roosevelt. He wrote to Teddy Roosevelt saying that we should attend to the Indian policy. And one of the first things that Teddy Roosevelt did when he went into the presidency was to summon Lemus to come immediately to advise on Western issues and the Indian question. Well, Lemus wired back that he was kind of busy right now, but he'd be there as soon as he could and showed up at the White House, uh, having ridden train from here to there, in his old corduroy suit, in, his, in the shirt that he started with, and looking and probably smelling, ripe. He was immediately called into the office of Roosevelt, and they had a long chat, and Lummis came away, having been appointed head of the commission to find new lands for the Indians that were in the Pala group that were at that time being evicted from the um, Warner Ranch area. So he came off, came back home very proudly, and set to work immediately with a group of his friends and trusted advisors who thought the same way he did on the Indian policy because the, by this time he had formed the Sequoia League for the purpose of 
champion, championing the Indian families. The Indian families at that time were having their sons, particularly, taken away to a boarding school and not sent back home for vacation until the boarding school thought that they had been broken of being Indian. The, the idea was so that they would be speaking English, dressing as proper Americans. Of course, they were sent home and couldn't understand their parents and their grandparents. They, they were totally um, unaccustomed to the Indian life. And it was uh, this outrage that Lamas protested his entire life with some degree of success. That's, Pat, that's fantastic. That's, that's a great overview of, of, of Charles Fletcher Lummis. Do you... It's only partial. No, well, I, I, well, Pat, I know we've only... We've, you haven't even scratched the surface, but we're going we're gonna to come back. We're going to interview you about, about this house. So, so before we go, though, is there anything you have? I mean, there's so much you haven't touched on, but is there anything you want people to remember about Charles Fletcher Lummis that you, that you haven't told us? It's okay. It's okay just to say no, but I just I just want to give you this chance before we sign off. Well, he was instrumental in saving the missions here in this house at this dinner table. He formed the Landmarks Club. They raised money. One, one way they did it was by publishing a cookbook, the Landmarks Cookbook. Everybody contributed recipes, including Lummis, who was championing the cause of peppers. You should put peppers into your recipes in this country because it's the right thing for the climate, and it's an, it, just generally it will improve your health. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly how I want to end this interview. Okay, okay you've, you've done a great job. We're going to come back, and we're going to start with this dining room table and the Landmarks Club. Okay. And, and so thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. It's, a, it's just a joy. I'm Andy Bales. I'm the CEO of Union Rescue Mission, and you're listening to You Can Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast for the week of July 22nd, 2013. I want to thank you for listening to our two interviews. Stephen G., author of Iconic Vision, John Parkinson, Los Angeles Architect, and Pat Adler Ingram, Executive Director of the Southern California Historical Society about Charles Fletcher Lummis and, and the very house the society hasn't been headquartered in since 1963. I'm glad you're listening. I hope you continue to listen. And Kim, if people want to give us feedback about their interest in this series, how can they do that? They can come and see us in an event, of which there are many. They can send us an email at youcanatthesunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at esoteric.com. You can also, if you're inclined, give us a rating on the iTunes podcast page, which uh, helps to let other people find the podcast. You can also tell your friends. Kim, that was great. Thank you so much. Kim, upcoming tours, the Dahlia Tour. Is, is this Saturday? Black Tide Tour, it's sold out. We're just going to move on. The next day, Sunday, July 28th, 
free Lava Monthly Literary Salon. Lava Sunday Salon. Lava Sunday Salon. Figaro uh, Bistro, more commonly known as Figaro Bistro, its proper name is La Nose de Figaro. That's on Broadway at 6th, across from the Los Angeles Theater. We're on the mezzanine. It's two hours. Got some great talks about early silent cinema in Los Angeles and early neon, which never existed. So, so things you've been wanting to know about Los Angeles in the teens and 20s, but were afraid to ask. Following the salon, immediately following the salon, we will have my free walking tour in a continuation of my Flaneur in the City series on Broadway. I encourage you to get to those two events. They're going to be fantastic. You have to register for my walking tour of the salons. You can just show up. The next, uh, next week, Tuesday, July 23rd, we have Raymond Chandler's birthday. 125 years young, and he doesn't look a day over... Yeah, he's doesn't look so great, but we love him so much, and of course we could not let this uh, auspicious date pass without gathering at the Los Angeles Athletic Club with some of his his friends and his fans and his lovers and his readers to simply raise a glass to this great chronicler of noir Los Angeles. You know, LA Magazine just did their rather odd competition to pick the great L.A. novel, and, and they ended up picking, picking Chester Himes, If You Hollers Let Him Go, of all things, which is you know, a great book, not necessarily what I would have thought of as the number one L.A. novel, but I understand why it got to the top. But Chandler dropped out early, and I think that Chandler is unpopular at the moment, oddly, because of uh, political correctness. I've seen so many things from book clubs. People are reading Chandler, and they're like, wow, he's really bad with people of different races and gender roles. I'm like, who cares? He's Raymond Chandler. He's Raymond Chandler, and you can read him and love him, and there's so much depth there. And I'm, I'm here to speak on behalf of Raymond Chandler and say... We have a waiting list for this 125th birthday, and uh, we, I'm sure we'll get a few cancellations today. So if you're interested, go to the link um, and ask us if you can get on the waiting list, and we'll try to get you in. It's going to be a great, great evening of uh, celebration of real places that inspired Chandler's work. The LA Athletic Club was where he heard it all, and all of the vice and, and finality of LA upper crust culture. It all comes right there. And then we're going to the Oviat, which is the inspiration of the beginning of The Lady in the Lake. And it's going to be a great night, and I'm so excited that we're doing it. Thanks, Kim. So, so we're almost in August. August 4, Sunday, August 4, an a, a odd one. We usually don't give tours on Sunday. But we have to on the 4th because we're going to go to the... Irving Gill Clark Estate in Santa Fe Springs, and, and they're only open on Thursdays and Sundays, the first Sunday of the month and every Thursday, to the general public, and we have to go there because it's part of my South L.A. road trip, which is a really amazing tour about California culture and these important locations in South Los Angeles, which are really, really ground zeroes for all these important things which have made California a creative engine for the world. Get on the bus. You'll see all of them. We, we've, we've added in Downey. We've added a stop in Downer, which I'm very excited about. A the, little the, bit of Spanish colonial yeah, revival Gyps to blow your mind. G- Gypsy Johnson House. We're going to get a tour of the grounds. So stay on that. Uh, strangely enough, August 10th is my Raymond Chandler tour. So if you've, you missed the par- birthday party, you make or you birth- Or you haven't had enough. You have in any any possible permutation of your mental state 
whatever it is, you can still get on the August 10th Chandler bus tour. So you should do that. And then we, we have, for the rest of August, we have two more of the California culture tours. We have on the 17th, we have my Boyle Heights Monterey Park bus tour, which is really a history of immigration patterns in those two neighborhoods. It's absolutely fantastic. And we end up at Wing Hop Fung for tea tasting. And, and somewhere in there, we get to the Venice Room, which is this great bar in Monterey Park, which opened in 1949. And, we get and to El Encanto, too, which is probably the most beautiful interior in the San Gabriel Valley. It's, it's, it's a great tour. Finally, August 24 is my Lowdown on Downtown tour, which is a history of the population, depopulation, and repopulation of residential downtown Los Angeles. This is a great tour, and we're really excited because Carlton Davis of Art Doc fame is going to join us, and we're going to go into the Pickle Works building at the end of this tour for the Arts District section, which is the final section of the tour. Pickle Works is where it all really started to happen for the Arts District. So this is this is very important. It's going to be a great, a great rock, a new rock on which to, to build the last part of this tour, the, the Pickle Works factory. So get on the bus. Stay tuned. It's It's all great. And oh, the next day, the 25th, Sunday the 25th, is once again the last Sunday of the month, so it must be our free Sunday salon at Figaro, and our two speakers, one of the two speakers will be, of course, Carlton Davis, talk continuing the dialogue which he will start on the bus the day before about the Arts District, Artist in Residence, Ordinances, Joel Wax, and of course his Art Doc, and his book Art Documents, which documents. The Art Doc, which was a gallery in a loading dock. Drive up and have a look. So, and, and our second speaker of that Sunday Salon is, is going to be Paul Nugent. He is uh, with the Aetherius Society, and he is going to talk about Dr. George King, Jesus Christ as a Cosmic Master, Karma, and the notion of the universe as benevolent, which, of course, it, it is. Fantastic. So, it's, it's going to be a great salon. That is looking ahead to August. And I want to thank you for listening. I want to encourage you to continue to listen. Maybe we'll even get on the bus. And I want to remind you, you can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La, 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, Midoriya, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood called Hermina between Goodbye.